Well, in the uh, classic movie Jurassic Park, there is a climactic scene where the velociraptors have our main characters trapped in a museum, and it looks like the end. The family is afraid. They think they're done for. And right as one of the velociraptors gets ready to pounce, T-Rex shows up. Tyrannosaurus Rex chomps down on one of the velociraptors. It distracts the other velociraptor, who then attacks the T-Rex, and the family is able to miraculously escape. Now, why in the world am I starting a sermon with an incredibly dated and odd uh, illustration? Well, when the family is facing the two velociraptors, they're scared. They think this is it. This is the end. But then T-Rex shows up, and they suddenly see that what they thought was really, really scary, really, really menacing, suddenly there was something bigger. Now, yes, it allowed them to escape, but if they had been trapped in that museum with the T-Rex, I think they would have been even more afraid. You see, there's this phenomenon in life every once in a while that we experience where we come across something that seems really powerful, maybe scary, maybe just really, really impressive, but then we see something else, and it makes the first thing seem like nothing. Uh, maybe you've watched it in sports. You, you watch two teams play, and one looks really, really good. They're just dominating. But then that really good team plays the number one ranked team, and suddenly you discover that good team really isn't all that good. Or maybe at work, you have a boss who is incredibly uh, type A, uh, maybe demanding, over the top, micromanages, just really, really difficult to be around. But then you meet his boss, and suddenly your boss really isn't all that bad. Or maybe at school. There is this kid who's just a bully. I mean, he just seems like the toughest kid in the entire school. But then you meet the bully's brother. And suddenly, you begin to understand why the bully is the way he is, but suddenly your bully, he looks kind of wimpy. Every once in a while, we see something that we think is really, really big and bad, but then we see something else and we realize that was nothing. That's the experience that the disciples are going to have today. The disciples of Jesus are going to witness something that is terrifying. It is going to have so much power, they're going to fear for their lives. But then they're going to witness something that is even more powerful. And it will fill them with great fear. The story is in Mark chapter 4. So if you brought a Bible, whether a paper copy or digital, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 4. If uh, you're a first-time guest with us, uh, whether online or here at Drosty Hall, my name is Aaron, a lead pastor for Riverwood. We're in a series going through the book of Mark, and uh, we open up the scriptures every single week. So if you do not have a Bible, but you have a smartphone, we encourage you to download a Bible to it. You can go into your app store and find all sorts of Bibles. We just recommend one of the more popular ones, like the YouVersion app, uh, the Bible app, or the ESV or CSV. Uh, you can find one of those for free and download that and use that. Or if you would really prefer a paper copy, just send me an email email, Aaron, E-R-I-N, at weareriverwood.org, and we will be sure to get a Bible sent to you, and that way you can have a paper Bible uh, in your hands. As we get ready to go to Mark chapter 4, uh, let's open up in prayer and ask God to be our teacher today. So Heavenly Father, as we get ready to open up the scriptures, we ask that you would teach us, that we would hear from you loud and clear. And Lord, while we are praying and we're talking about teaching, we pray right now, not only for the students that will be going back to school, but for the teachers, for the administrators. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic, they are having to make so many decisions. And for many of them, this is a, a big weight to carry. And so I pray that those that know you, that they would be turning to you, that you would be their source of comfort, of relief, 
uh, that, that you would uh, help those that don't know you, that through the, the difficulties, that this might be the path that you use to draw them to you, and they would reali realize that there's something greater than what they're facing right now. And Lord, I pray that we, uh, those of us who are Jesus followers, who are part of the Riverwood family, that we would be a blessing to those teachers, to those administrators, to those students, that we would do what we can to help them, to serve them, to pray for them, and to love them. Because this is going to be a big change. So give our, our, our uh, school boards, our, our, our principals, our superintendents wisdom in how to lead through this time. We pray for them now in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, it, we've been in Mark chapter 4 for a while now. Uh, we've been seeing in Mark 4 uh, quite a few parables. But last week we came to the fourth and final parable, and now Mark makes a switch. He goes from four parables to now going to four miracles. And here at the end of chapter 4, we get to see the first of those miracles. So uh, please read silently along as I read aloud. This is Mark 4. We're going to start in verse 35, and we'll go through th 41. Well, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What I'd like you to do right now is I want you to imagine you are there in the, at the Sea of Galilee. You've just heard Jesus teaching for a couple of hours, sharing some of these parables, uh, teaching unlike any of the other rabbis. But then the sun's starting to set, evening is coming, and so Jesus dismisses the crowds. And as the crowds begin to take away, the disciples start coming around Jesus. And you walk up there with them, and they're starting to ask themselves, like, so what, what are we going to do now, Jesus? Or, you know, do you want to head into town and grab a bite to eat? Uh, should we just stay here and build a campfire, uh, catch some fish? What, what do you want to do? Jesus says, you know what, let, let's head across the, the sea. So you begin to climb in a boat to get ready to take off. Now, I, I want to put a little pause here, and I want to talk about something that's really, really minor. Like, this does not contribute to our main point at all today, but it's just something small I want to point out in case any of you are kind of wrestling with, is the Bible something that we can really trust and is reliable? You see, there's many people who say that the Bible is a work of fiction. Well, if someone is telling a lie, a work of fiction, but they want you to believe it's actually true, they will often add in a lot of details. All right, kids, don't pay too much attention to this, all right? But they will add in a lot of details to try and make it sound like it's really, really true. So if Mark were writing fiction here, he might tr throw in, you know, what color of, of tunic Jesus was wearing. Or they, they might, you know, he might, you know, point out, like, how many people are there, the, the types of food that they had with them, or exactly the number of boats. But he doesn't do that. But there is this one little extraneous piece of information that just kind of seems thrown in. It doesn't add anything to our story. It's right there in verse 36. Where in leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. Now, if, if he's trying to write a work of fiction, this doesn't really help his case. This sort of sentence, it sounds more like an eyewitness account. 
if you were with us back in March when we began this Mark series, and by the way, if you're a first-time guest with us, uh, we've not been doing Mark since March all the time. This summer, we did the Summer of Psalms. Um, but back in March when we began this series, we saw that this is actually the account of Peter. Peter was in prison. Mark goes, finds Peter, and, and dictates from him. And so Peter is sharing, here's what I remember. And so I could imagine this. Peter's getting ready to tell the story. He's like, oh, <laughs> I remember this one time. So we're, we're at the, on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gets done preaching. And we get ready to climb into the, the boat. And as we're taking off, there's, there's like some other boats with us. This is like an eyewitness account. The reason I point this out is that for me, this just gives me like a, a peace. Like an assuredness that what I am reading is reliable. That, that this is not a work of fiction. That this is actually an eyewitness account. That we are receiving this from the people who were right there. Peter saw this. And just top of his head, oh yeah, there are these other boats. And so because he throws in these little bits of extraneous bits of information, it helps me know that the key things that we're going to see today are reliable. So Jesus climbs into the boat with the 12 disciples. There are these other boats with them. They start heading across the sea. And verse 37 starts off with this phrase. And a great windstorm arose. Now, we got to stop and talk about the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Sea of Galilee really wasn't a very impressive sea. It's nothing like the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, this is really just a lake. It was only 13 miles long and about eight miles across. So when Jesus says, hey, let's go across the sea, the farthest they could have gone was he was probably going from uh, west to east. And so the longest he'd go would be eight miles. That would be from about the east side of Waverly to downtown Shell Rock. Right? So we're not talking like the Mediterranean Sea, you know, one of these things that you'd really call a sea. Now, this is a lake. But it has a very distinct feature about it. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. It sits at 700 feet below sea level, which has hills all around it which protect it and allows heat to get trapped. But just 30 miles north is Mount Hermon. And the, the cool airs can come down the mountain, clash in with the warm air at the Sea of Galilee, and it causes these squalls to come up. And they can happen like that. But what I want you to remember is that these disciples in the boat, several of them are fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, John. These guys grew up in Capernaum, and they cut their boating teeth on the Sea of Galilee. So if anyone knows this sea and how to handle these sort of pop-up storms, it's these guys. Which is why we need to stop and realize their reaction. Their reaction shows this is bigger than anything they've experienced. They actually begin to fear for their lives. The water is crashing into the boat. They're trying to bail. It's like all hands on deck. Except there's one person who doesn't seem to be on deck. And that's Jesus. He's asleep on a cushion as the boat is getting rocked, as the waves are crashing in, rain's coming down, he's getting soaked, and he's zonked out. And did you notice what the disciples do? They wake him, they shake him, and they say to him, verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? These experienced fishermen who know how to handle a boat are now scared for their lives. This storm has power. And they think this is the end. It's almost like they're facing a couple of velociraptors. They wake Jesus. Now we don't know if Jesus just opens his eyes 
We don't know if he actually stands up. All Mark records is that Jesus wakes and says, peace, be still. Notice he did not appeal to a higher power. Oh, great and mighty God, I ask in your name that you... He, he doesn't utter some sort of like Gandalf-type incantation. No, he's like a parent speaking to a disobedient child. Stop. And the winds cease, and the waves calm. And now the disciples, instead of going, whew, thank you, that, that was a close one. Notice what it says in verse 41. It says, and they were filled with great fear. Like they, they just were afraid for their lives. This storm, which they've handled storms before, this one was the worst they've ever seen. They think this is it. They think they're going to die. And suddenly it stops, and now they're filled with great fear, more fear. T-Rex has just entered the building. And they utter themselves, who then is this? Because you see, these Jewish boys, they know the Hebrew scriptures. And they know that back in the Psalms, the psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verses 28 and 29, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they just lived it. They know that the psalmist isn't saying that just some cool, great guy, someone really strong, someone with a way with words. No. God is the only one who can stop a storm. That's why these disciples are mystified. They're sitting there going, who is this? Because they thought they knew who this Jesus was. He's from Nazareth, son of a carpenter, son of Mary. That, that he was this great teacher. Like he was one of the greatest rabbis they'd ever been around. They'd seen him work miracles. They thought they knew who this was. But now they just witnessed him do something that only God can do. We've already seen this truth, though, in Mark. Mark has been saying this to us over and over. We saw it back in chapter 1 when Jesus uh, uh, announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. And we saw that really he's announcing that he is the king. He is God. We, we saw it again in the, the uh, story of, of the, the uh, roof being ripped open and the friends lowering their paralyzed friend down. And Jesus looks at the friend and says, your sins are forgiven. And we had to talk about how only God can forgive sins. So therefore, Jesus is God. We've seen this throughout the scriptures. But clearly, Mark wants us to get this because he's putting it in here yet again. Because Mark knows that Peter and Andrew and James and John, all of them, they had a high view of Jesus. They'd heard his teaching, they'd seen the miracles, and yet here they are in the boat. And when Jesus calms a storm and they ask themselves, who is this? Could this be God? Mark wants us to not make the same mistake and miss who Jesus really is. He's putting it out there loud and clear. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I think this is why in verse 40, Jesus turns to them and says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
Now, when you hear that phrase, have you still no faith, it makes you think that this is about the amount of faith. But Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, points out that this could also be translated, where is your faith? Because these disciples, they probably had their faith in their experience as boatmen, uh, you know, maybe in the, in the boat. And Jesus is in a sense saying, uh, guys, where is your faith? I've been reading a book uh, this past week called The Honest Guide to Church Planting by Tom Bernardo. I uh, was not familiar with Tom before this book, but the book came highly recommended, and I've been thoroughly enjoying it. But in the introduction, Tom shares a little bit of his story. Uh, his story kind of begins when he's 16 years old, and someone dared him to enter an international preaching contest. He thought it'd be kind of funny, so on the dare, he decides to do it, and he ends up winning all sorts of people give him all this applause, all this kudos. They begin to invite a 16-year-old to come and speak at these, you know, conferences and events. And these things change the direction of his life. And he decides to go into full-time ministry. So Tom heads off to Bible college where he becomes a, a leader. After Bible college, he heads to a seminary where he continues to win preaching contests. After seminary, he gets hired as the youth pastor for a 6,000-person megachurch. And the youth group is growing. He has opportunities to come and preach before all 6,000 people. They love him. Everything he touches turns to gold. But then God began to just kind of stir in his heart and his wife's heart. And they sensed God had something next for him. And a, a guy approaches them and says, hey, we've heard about this small group of people who want to plant a church on the other side of the nation. We want to know if you would lead it. So they pray about it and they feel like, yeah, this is what God's calling us to. And so they go. And Tom has huge dreams. He imagines that they're going to get there, and he's going to bond with these people. They're going to start services. He's going to get up there and preach, and people are going to come, and they're going to start another megachurch. And so he gets out there. He's got the passion. He's got the plans. He's got the gifts. And then, and I quote, he said that the people stayed away in droves. He said people were not wowed by his preaching. He'd work with his core group, and he'd try and lead, and he'd get a lot of nice, polite uh, head nods, uh, but no follow-through. And ever so slowly, people in their core group began to move away from their jobs or just simply leave because they just weren't encaptured by the vision anymore. Suddenly, Tom felt like he was in a storm. Felt like everything was crashing in on him. Why was this happening? Because beforehand, everything he did went awesome and great. Why was God ignoring him now? So he reaches out. He cries out to God. God, why are you allowing me to perish? But instead of God waking up, it felt like God continued to sleep. You ever been there? You ever had a season in life where you just feel like everything is against you? It just feels like nothing's working. And you're crying out to God, where are you? Why won't you help? And so we come to a story like this. And what we do is we grab onto the part where they reach out, they wake up Jesus, he stands up, and he calms the storm and fixes everything. And so we walk away going, okay, so I just have to have faith. I just got to cry out to God. I got to wake him up. By the way, theologically, God does not sleep, by the way. But I got to wake him up. I got to get his attention because then all I need him to do is say, stop, and everything will be fixed. But I want you to notice, Jesus did not save the guy's from experiencing the storm. You realize the storm still came. Je Jesus didn't wake up and go, oh guys, 
my bad. I forgot to tell that storm not to come while I was snoozing. He didn't wake up and say, oh, I, so, guys, I meant to put a protective bubble around us so that the waves wouldn't affect us. I am so sorry about that. No, he let the waves crash on the boat. He let the boat begin to fill. He let these guys reach a point where they are afraid. But I think he did it because he needed them to see that he was God. Tom shares in his book about a friend, a pastor friend, who also decided to plant a church. And just like Tom's experience with his first church plant, it, it, it didn't go very well. They ended up also having to close it, just like Tom's church had to. But this friend, instead of feeling like God was asleep through the whole thing, this friend came to the conclusion that there must not even be a God. And to this day, Tom says that his friend is, would consider himself an atheistic humanist. You see, Tom realized that going into his church plant, his faith was in his preaching gift. His faith was in his, his experiences, because everything he did touched, turned to gold. His, his faith was really in himself. And the greatest gift God gave Tom was to let him go through the storm so that his faith was not in himself, but that his faith was in God. That's what some of us need to know. Jesus is God. And sometimes the storms he lets us go through is to help us get our faith off the wrong thing onto the right thing. So that's why I have to ask you what I think Jesus was asking them. Where is your faith? Is your faith in your abilities? Is your faith in your bank account? Is it in your resume, your experiences? Is your faith in the network of people that you have? Is your faith in, in these close relationships? Where is your faith? Now, I realize some of you might be saying inside, well, my faith is in God. My faith is in Jesus. But I would like to point out that before they got into the boat, if you had asked Peter and Andrew, James and John, Thomas, the other disciples, hey, where is your faith? These guys would have gone, right there. Have you seen this guy? I mean, the miracles he's done, the, the way he teaches, my faith is in Jesus. But the storm revealed that it wasn't in Jesus enough, that they didn't have a proper view of who Jesus really was. So the storm was actually a gift so that they could begin to see and have their faith purified so that it would be properly placed in Jesus. But this might cause you to say, okay, but Aaron, if, if God's going to let me go through these storms, how can I trust him? D does he really love me? I'd say that's a really good question. It's an honest question. It's a natural question. And I have two responses. Number one, I think that you can trust God in the middle of your storm because he is good. Too often when we go through these storms, we thought our faith was strong. The question is, where is your faith in the middle of the storm? Where is your faith when you're in the midst of a pandemic? Where is your faith when the doctor says it's cancer? Where is your faith when your marriage is on the rocks? Where is your faith with one of your kids walks away from you saying they never want to see you again or they walk away from your faith? 
Where's your faith in the middle of the storm? When you've lost a job, when the bill collectors keep calling, when you just feel like no one seems to really care about what you're going through. Where is your faith in the middle of the storm? See, what Jesus wants is for you to realize that he doesn't eliminate the storms, but he is with you in the storms. And he is good. You see, Jesus realized that these 12 disciples in the boat, they were the ones who were going to go on and, and change the world. It was going to be through them that the, the gospel would spread, the church would be planted. So he wasn't about to let anything happen to them. But he needed them to see who he really was. Because if they're going to go to the ends of the earth, they've got to be able to represent him accurately. So they can't just go and tell people about this amazing teacher. They can't just go around and tell them about this magic man who can heal people. They've got to go and tell them, Jesus is God. And what better way than to let them see he's the fulfillment of Psalm 107, 28 and 29. Only he can calm the storm because he is the one who built it, who, who created it. He's like the dad of it all. And so when he says stop, the storm stops. And so it's actually a good thing. The storm was a good thing. Romans 8.28 tells us that God can use all things for the good of those who love him. All things. Even the storms. So yes, God can use the great things like the, the birth of a child, your marriage, a new job. He can use those things to accomplish his will in your life. But he can also use the difficulties, the storms, the pain, the moments when you are scared. Because he is more powerful than any storm you can face. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, has this scene where the four Pivinci children are sitting in Mr. Uh, Mrs. Beaver's uh, dam, their home. And they hear the name Aslan. And it stirs something within them. And they ask about Aslan. And they find out he's a lion. And Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? Mr. Beaver laughs and says, no, he's not safe. But he's good. God is good. So good. Now, it probably means you, you need your definition of good changed. Because so often we see God as being good when we define what good is. God is good when he does my way at the right time. But if we're going to really say God is good, it means we have to give God permission to do it his way in his timing. Yes, it might leave us feeling uncomfortable. We may find ourselves in the middle of the storm. The waves may be crashing in. But he is good. His timing is perfect. You can trust him. But you might say, but Aaron... Sounds like you're asking me just to exhibit blind faith. That no matter what happens, I just trust that God will work in the midst of it. Well, let me help your faith become sight. Because the second thing I want to point out is that the reason you can trust God in the storms is because Jesus allowed himself to be thrown into the storm. The way Peter tells this story to Mark, it, it draws out parallels with a famous Old Testament story. Maybe some of you kind of caught on to it, but I, I sense most of us did not. But if you grew up going to church, you maybe know the story of Jonah and the whale. But before Jonah actually got swallowed by the whale, he was on a boat, just like Jesus. That boat went through a storm, just like Jesus. Jonah was asleep in the boat, just like Jesus. Jonah got woken by sailors who were scared for their life, just like Jesus. 
And then there was a miraculous intervention, divine intervention, where the storm stopped and the waves were calm. But that's where their difference is. Because you see, in Jesus' story, Jesus stands up and says it with a word. In Jonah's story, he has to tell the sailors, this is being caused by my God because I was supposed to go to uh, uh, Nar- uh, Narnia, whoops, uh, Nineveh. I was supposed to go to Nineveh to preach, but I'm running away. I'm headed to Tarshish, and God is doing this to stop it. So you have to throw me overboard. The sailors are like, no, we're, we're not going to throw you overboard. If we do that, you're going to die. And basically, Jonah says, you have to. If you don't, you'll die. But by letting me die, you live. And I think that's what Mark wants us to realize. Is that on the spiritual level, Jesus, God the Son, allowed himself to be thrown into the chaos of the storm of this world. And in the midst of it, he allowed himself to go to the cross and die so that we might live. He went to the cross so that the storms could be stopped. That on a spiritual level, we could have the, the waves cease, I mean the wind cease, the waves calmed, and we could have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. The reason you can trust God in the storms and know he is good, because Jesus came into the storm with us, and he went through hell to give you heaven. And so as you look at the cross and the empty grave, realizing the storm Jesus went through, it helps you to trust him. Because it helps you see that he is more powerful than any storm that can come in your life. Because guess what? If your life is in Christ... Even if the storms of this world win and your life is snuffed out, who you are does not end. You have eternal life with your heavenly father. He wins. You're alive. All glory to him. Which means if you are not a follower of Jesus, you have a decision to make. Will you continue on putting your faith in yourself, in your abilities, in your experiences, or will you now put your faith in God? Will you say the story of Jesus was just a fictional story? Or will you say it's true? And I will cast all of my faith, all of my trust, all of my identity onto the story. That the story of Jesus going to a cross and rising from the dead is now the key central part of my life. And I choose to follow him because he is God. If you're ready to make a decision like that, most people mark this moment with prayer. So, if you would, join me in prayer. So, Heavenly Father, I pray right now for the person, whether right here at Drosty Hall or joining us online, that as they are are realizing that they need you, that the storms of life have, have been such that they've been buffeted and pushed around, and yet you are their rock. That right now, they confess their sin, they put their full weight, their full faith, everything they are upon you. Because you tell us that you so loved the world you sent your one and only son into the storm of this world that whoever would believe in Jesus, believe in the gospel, believe in the story, would have everlasting life, that they would enter the kingdom of God, they would become your child, going from spiritual darkness into spiritual light, from spiritual death into spiritual life, going from being separated from their their creator to now being an adopted son of the most high God.